Hello, and welcome again to the Sky U Podcast by The Daily Gopher. I am Chris, go AU Fur. We have with us this week, U Street. Hey, y'all. And Blake, Iowa Gopher. Happy to be here. All right, so uh, coming off a of bye week, um, which I, I, as we talked about last week, I hate bye weeks. Um, it was really weird for me. I, I did some golfing on Saturday. That was nice, but honestly, I much prefer it when I have gophers to watch and gophers to get excited for. That said, uh, there was plenty of good stuff in the bye week, some of which we will get to later. Before we get there, though, uh, let's talk about just the Big Ten in general. Um, how, how do we think the Big Ten is shaping up? Who do we think is going to win the West? Who do we think is going to win the East? And what surprises do we have from the season? And in case you can probably hear that, that's my cat already coming to say hi. So let me see if I can convince her that this is not the time to, to come say hello. Um, while I'm doing that, Street, do you want to talk about what your thoughts are on the Big Ten so far? Sure. It's been a good four weeks. Uh, Purdue-Michigan was uh, interesting for a whole host of reasons, though perhaps not as interesting of a football game as I was hoping for. The Iowa-Penn State game was fantastic, both for the result and also because I felt like I could really hate Penn State even after that game, and I felt good about that. It's a strange one in that I feel as if both divisions are still a bit more up in the air than I would expect them to be. I think you have to assume that Wisconsin is still the favorite in the West, but while it's difficult to tell that because Nebraska has looked terrible, Northwestern has looked terrible, but Iowa looked pretty good last Saturday. In the East, Penn State obviously is still the team to beat, though I'll be honest, I really like Michigan. I think that they're probably going to pull it together and get better over the season, and if that continues, I think it's entirely plausible that Harbaugh is going to win the game and Michigan is going to represent the East, which was not what I thought at the beginning of the season. I thought Michigan was going to be really good. And then that first week happened and their offense looked like a wet noodle. And I felt sort of skeptical about that. And I'm still a little skeptical about it, but it seems like the way that they're playing is a little bit better. I don't know. Blake, do you agree, disagree? With Michigan, I mean, I just don't know. It's it's so early in the season, and I mean, at this point, it's it's hard for me to count out Penn State. And Penn State was a team that I was really looking forward to seeing how they kind of bounce back this year. Because last year, I felt like they were just they got hot after the Minnesota win and just rode that all the way through the Big Ten championship, and when no one expected them to. Um, and I was kind of wondering if they were for real, if they could have a similar season to that this year and kind of sustain that success. And I mean, it's just hard to argue with the results so far. I mean, I I have no reason to doubt. Saquon Barkley, who's been incredible for them over the course of the season that you saw, especially he had like 330-some all-purpose yards against Iowa, basically single-handedly was their offense. Um, and even their quarterback, Trace McSorley's had a pretty good year so far. After last year, he kind of just had that jump ball offense where he had a couple receivers that um, he'd just throw the ball up downfield and they'd come down with it. Um, and I, did, I honestly didn't think that he could sustain that this year, but he's actually looked pretty strong. And, I mean, we all saw that, that window he threw the ball into – um, against Iowa in that final play. So he's actually been pretty good. Um, with Michigan Ohio State, just neither's looked very impressive early on. Um, Ohio State's obviously been tested, um, and they didn't pass that test uh, against Oklahoma. Uh, Michigan, I just I just don't know how much they're going to improve over the year. Um, they've just been up and down in games. Like Purdue for three quarters, Purdue looked like they're going to 
pull that one out, and then Michigan just pulls away in the, in the fourth quarter. But um, I know right now, if I had to say, I still think Penn State's the favorite in um, the East. But I think Ohio State and Michigan depends on how, they, how the season plays out. Um, in the West, I mean, I agree with you. It's hard to bet against Wisconsin at this point. Um, Iowa looks like a contender, unless the Penn State game was just a flash in the pan. Um, Minnesota, I mean, you mentioned Nebraska looks bad. Northwestern looks bad. Illinois still getting pretty bad. I'd say Minnesota and Purdue maybe are the wild cards. Um, Purdue, I think, is much improved. I just don't know how much improved. Um, that to me is probably the um, most concerning game over the in the Indians or not the one talking about the Indians the Gophers first half. Um, Keep it together, Blake. Keep it together. I tried. It's, it's, I just got the Indians on the brain, man. Postseason's next week, so. Um, but yeah, in the in the West, I just think it's Wisconsin and Iowa, and Minnesota are kind of chasing their coattails. So. Uh, did you hear my new favorite conspiracy theory? I have not heard this. about the Penn State Iowa game. No, let's hear this. Apparently, and this is a real conspiracy theory because Penn State fans are the greatest. The reason why Saquon Barkley was unable to elude and get space against Iowa defenders was that they threw down a bunch of extra rubber, tire rubber pellets into the grass to slow him down. So the, the thing that I find so horrendously stupid about that conspiracy theory is one, he was able to elude them and get space. He did it like a bunch of times and in some super amazing, incredible ways that like every Iowa fan in my Twitter timeline is like, Welp, that was pretty amazing. Like they had no choice but to be totally awed by it because it was that incredible. So that's the first problem with that theory. The second problem with that theory is that Iowa's defensive plan to contain him was so blatantly obvious that the dumbest of commentators would have been able to say, I was playing soft and trying to keep everything in front of them. Like, it wasn't even, there was nothing hidden about it. But I, it takes a real, real, extremely dumb fan to try to, like, put that forward as a conspiracy theory, which I suppose is why it's coming from the Penn State fan base as opposed to, say, the Rutgers fan base, which is just delusional. And not, you know, horribly, just magnificently stupid at, of the worst way. What do you think the Rutgers fan conspiracy would be? Is it that Rutgers is, is it because Rutgers is so bad right now? So that's the, that's the thing to explain. What would be the best conspiracy theory for Rutgers? I think it's an act of God for Jersey Shore. See, I don't That's actually think Rutgers fans would waste their time on a conspiracy theory. I think they would waste their time doing what I saw one of them do, which I put into the, the gnomes this week, which is they're going to sit there and start bitching about, oh my goodness, why didn't we manage to retain Saquon Barkley as a recruit without bothering to think, hmm, I don't know, maybe it's because Penn State put on a full court press and Penn State's way better than we are and he would probably prefer to play for Penn State as opposed to play for Rutgers. So I don't think they'd waste any time on a conspiracy theory. I think they'd just get really like myopic and start wondering, like, why isn't Rutgers as awesome as I think Rutgers is? Which is pretty much how they go through life, as far as I can tell. When they're not threatening to have, you know, their friends in the advertising departments of New York firms tell Vox Media that they're not getting any money because the Daily Gopher insulted them once. Which, for anyone who isn't aware, that actually happened. We had Rutgers fans on Twitter 
threaten to somehow close the blog down because ad money wouldn't be coming in because of us or something. We never really got the full gist. It was just, it was special. My big 10 thoughts, I'm going to keep them really quick in bullet point. The first is kind of playing off of what Alex said about Michigan being Ohio, beating Ohio State. I honestly kind of feel like Harbaugh is going to get a little bit of a John Cooper stretch going. I kind of feel like he might get like five years in before he's beat in Ohio State. And maybe this is just me wishing it because it'll drive Michigan fans crazy if that's what happened. Because Harbaugh is like, he's like the perfect Michigan man deity to them. Which is why they'll defend his comments about the Purdue locker room so stupidly as opposed to simply pointing out, yep, he's right gamesmanship is going on they really latch on to the the player safety element of it which is just has some serious holes um so that's my first thought is i think ohio state beats michigan i think penn state's still the class of the east right now i don't see any reason why that should be questioned as much as that annoys me um i honestly don't care about the rest of the east outside of the top three uh so we'll look at the west i think off of what we've seen so far, obviously Wisconsin's still at, t- at the top. I feel like you got to put Iowa at number two, even though I'm inclined to feel like the Penn State performance is a bit of a one-off. With uh, They just do that sort of thing at night, which is why I really hope the Minnesota-Iowa game doesn't get moved to the night. And then after that, I think it's really kind of just a... You could, you could select anybody to be number three. I'll select Minnesota because I'm a Minnesota fan. Um... But I wouldn't be shocked if by the end of the year, if Minnesota keeps doing what they're doing, that it's Wisconsin and Minnesota coming down to the stretch. That's wishful thinking, and I'm still not like, I'm still not totally sure that we won't run into a year one scenario that kind of keeps us held back to the six and six, seven and five kind of range. At which point, we're definitely not the second best team in the West, in my opinion. But you know, I'm feeling good today, so I'll just say as of right now. Um, I'm going to let the optimism take over, and Minnesota's the, the second-best team behind Wisconsin, who's clearly still the class of the West, annoyingly. Putting the wider Big Ten aside and looking ahead to Maryland, Blake, you're the one who's been prepping the actual preview that Maryland fans will be interested to read this week. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts as far as uh, who, who will be facing with the Terrapins on Saturday? Well, as we all know, Maryland has had the worst quarterback luck of uh, any team that I've seen in recent history. Uh, the first week they lost um, Terrell Program due to an ACL, and then the backup came in, true freshman um, Kasim Hill. Um, last week he tears his ACL um, against Central Florida, and then they bring in their third stringer, which is uh, sophomore Max Bordenschlager. I have no idea if that's the correct pronunciation, but... Uh, uh, he didn't do so well against Central Florida. I think he was 15 for 26, 132 passing yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. So um, Gover's again a bit of a break for the second year in a row. Last year they faced their backup, which was Pogram, um, and the defense handled it pretty well. Fortunately this um, for Maryland, this Bordenschlager does have some playmakers around him. Um, their best receiver is DJ Moore. Uh, he's got 28 receptions, 281 receiving yards, and four touchdowns. He's pretty talented. Um, he's going to test the, the Gopher secondary, especially um, with how thin they are right now. So Creighton, especially um, being out for the year, um, only one other receiver has caught a touchdown this year for Maryland. That's Tavon Jacobs. He's a senior. Um, so those two are. I mean, if you shut down Jacobs and more, they don't have a lot of options there, or at least proven options that we've seen so far. Um, 
<laughs> they also have a pair of good running backs. Uh, junior Ty Johnson, sophomore Lorenzo Harrison the third. Um, Johnson's pretty good. He's kind of the speedster on offense. Uh, I kid you not, he is averaging uh, 10 yards per carry just because he had some like track athlete runs against Texas. Um, and in their second week, they played an FCS team, Towson, and obviously he ran wild there. So um, so they're not totally lost without their first two quarterbacks, but uh, Borden Slaughter is going to have his work cut out for him. Um, we'll just see if the uh, Gopher secondary can uh, hold up against him. On defense, I really don't don't know what to make of uh, Maryland. They're, I think it's pretty solid. Um, Texas kind of threw all over the place. I think threw for through 375 yards um, in week one, but that was also kind of a weird week one game. Um, and then last week in Central Florida, the offense just wasn't doing anything. They couldn't, they couldn't stay on the field, and eventually Maryland's defense just wore down. Um, and Central Florida just started running the ball down their throat. And they ran for about 250 yards on uh, a lot of attempts. I'm not sure how many attempts, but they just, I mean, that's just their MO in that game. Um, and I think that that plays into uh, Minnesota's hands because that's what they've done so far. Um, it's just run, 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 and hopefully wear down the defense. Um, so that's definitely good news for um, Minnesota, but I don't think that Minnesota's going to run away with it just because Maryland's got a pretty decent defense. Um, so if, I guess if the Gopher defense comes to play, um, that should be good news for the Gopher offense. So we'll see. I don't know. You straight, what are you going to be looking for on Saturday? I'm first going to be looking for how to actually pronounce the Maryland quarterbacks. <laughs> I have no idea either. I think it's an open question if anyone does. His last name may be the Schrodinger's cat of last names. I think, like you said, the Gopher defense is going to probably win or lose this game. And I say lose this game because Maryland does have a lot of playmakers. They're very fast, as you mentioned. They can get the ball to players in space. You get one-on-one matchups. The defense isn't on their game. One missed tackle, and that's Howes. And then Maryland looks a lot like what they were doing to Texas. So that's a little nerve-wracking to me. Also, this is the first real opponent the Gophers are going to face this year, by far. And so what we've seen with the defense thus far has been great, but also it's been against lesser competition. This is the first game where they're going to see actual Big Ten talent. So that's what I'm looking for. On offense, as I mentioned in the podcast, Last week, what I'm looking for from our quarterback is his ability to make decisions quicker. And I'm hoping that the bye week, additional film review, getting back into practice, feeling more comfortable, hopefully getting healthy, will mean that when we see Connor Rudd on Saturday, he gets a picture in his head, he gets the ball up very fast. If that's true, the Gopher offense should be reasonably successful. I think the Gophers can run the ball against Maryland. I'm hoping for offensive line push. I'm hoping they build on the third and fourth quarters. And the last thing that I'll say that I'm interested in before I turn this over to Chris is who is actually going to start at running back? There's a claim that both Rodney Smith and Shannon Brooks are healthy. However, Kobe McCurry did very well in the second half of that football game. He's a big power back. If you're thinking that Smith or Brooks aren't 100% healthy, it may be interesting to see if and when Kobe McCurry gets snaps. Yeah, I'd have to say if, if if Rodney's injury was anything involving his head, a concussion, uh, concerned about a concussion, even if they didn't officially diagnose it, if there's anything head injury related, I got to feel like he moves to number three just for this week 
because you have two other backs who can take the load. Even if they think he's ready, even if he is 100% okay to go, I, I feel like that's where you should put him if you had any concerns about a head injury. Shannon, you know, from everything everyone said, it was it was a shoulder kind of bang-up scenario. So I think given that you're looking at, well, really about almost three weeks since they decided to kind of hold him back, he's probably okay. Um, either to be the number one or number two back this week. And then Kobe, I mean, there's absolutely nothing suggesting Kobe's anything but 100%. So if it was me, I'd like to see them run Kobe Shannon. Um, just to just to make sure that if that if Rodney's having anything, um, that he's had time to, to continue to heal. Now, if there's absolutely no concerns about Rodney, hey, run him. If it was just a, a, a scenario where something not that big happened, okay. It's not how it felt coming out of the end of the first half against Middle Tennessee, but that's certainly, you know, I have no way to speak to it. I, I don't have the information I need to speak uh, intelligently about that. When it comes to how I feel about this game, I think if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I probably would have, I probably would have said this was about a three or a four on the Brewster Fear scale, just because. You know, first Big Ten game, Maryland's looking good. Yeah, they're running a true freshman quarterback, but he's super talented, and you kind of always had the feeling that uh, he was the guy they wanted to have playing quarterback. Once the the four-star, um, whose name from the, the the UNC transfer, whose name I cannot for the life of me think of because he never took a snap. Once he went down, I think Hill was the guy that kind of would have preferred had been able to play from the beginning if he was ready. But now that we're into Max Shortell, because I'm just calling the dude Max Shortell. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I didn't even remember his name was Max until one of you guys mentioned it. So I'm just calling him Max Shortell. Until Max Shortell um, comes into play. Now with that, I'm kind of feeling more like two Brewsters. I mean, heck, I'm even tempted to just say one Brewster. They have plenty of talent. Like, Maryland's not a bad team. They're just having bad injury luck. But something like, I don't know, I just feel like I feel like this defense is in a place where they're ready to feast on a quarterback who doesn't have experience. And playmakers aside, I don't know. I just, it feels good. I mean, maybe that's me setting myself up for a typical Minnesota moment where I'm really, really frustrated come this weekend. But ultimately, I'm just not super stressed out about Maryland, and I feel really pretty good uh, about them playing Maryland this weekend. So, um, you know, in this game, I, I'm going to have to say Gopher defense is going to eat Max Shortell alive, which is really sad because, you know, Max Shortell was a nice guy. Um, well, I mean, and speaking of the Gopher defense, that's kind of what we picked as our third topic for tonight. Um, actually, I feel like my, my little Brewster scale prediction may have lined up a little too carefully <laughs> with the Gopher defense uh, topic that we wrote out for ourselves. Um what is the worst defensive collapse that haunts your dreams as a Gopher fan? And try not to just stick with Michigan from uh, 2003. And what about this Gopher defense does keeps you from being worried about that kind of a collapse? And we'll start with Street. I'm somewhat disappointed we can't stick to Michigan because I feel as if I should apologize to every Minnesota fan. I was in the game. I was in the in the stands for that game. At the end of the third quarter, I went to get ice cream. This is back in the Metrodome. 
So I was on the second level, got some ice cream, looked out, and came over, looked out over the field, and said out loud, because I'm an idiot, hey, I think we're going to win this one. Security guard next to me smiled, and then they didn't. They didn't win. Hold on, Street. I'm going to cut you off. You're not at fault there, my friend. I'm at fault, because I did something far worse than that. Um... I was there. Uh, I was not a U student. I was visiting my girlfriend at the time, who was a U student, and we. Were, I was there with her and some of her friends, and her friend Tom and I. Uh, I don't remember which TV station. I'm pretty sure it was Fox Nine. Was working its way through the student section, getting B-roll and getting on-camera uh, celebrations from the students uh, during the third quarter into the fourth quarter. Um, getting us to say very loud things that they could, you know, choose to run on the broadcast that night. And Tom and I may or may not have started hollering about, we're going to the Rose Bowl, we're going to the Rose Bowl, and things like that. So I don't think eating ice cream with, we're going to win this, quite matches up to number one fingers in the air while screaming into the camera that we're going to the Rose Bowl. I Admittedly, maybe. I did not have a foam finger. I oh, mean, there I were no foam fingers. No foam fingers, just regular fingers, but very large, you know, tall person regular fingers. So, so that one's bad. I suppose the other one that I was answering. So I went, I went and looked this up. Of, of the 10 biggest college football comebacks, and I'm led to believe this is in the history of college football, the Gophers are on that list twice. Twice! The most recent one, besides the, the Michigan one, was obviously Texas Tech and Minnesota, which is Glenn Mason's swan song in every way. Mm-hmm. Getting a huge lead, running the ball, doing everything right, and then having no defense whatsoever, and at some point just kind of stopped caring. And as a wonderful metaphor of his tenure as a coach, so too was, was that football game. Texas Tech coming back to win 44-41 in overtime. And that one, to a degree, I think I think I called. I think there was some time when the Gophers were up a lot. And I just like, I think they're going to lose this game. I think they're going to lose. How I think this Gopher defense is different than those Gopher defenses. One, uh, unquestionably, through at least three games, Rob Smith has proven that he cares about actually teaching a defense. That's helpful. They're far more opportunistic, which is good. And I think that one of the nice things for everyone who isn't new on the team is they got to go through the Tracy Clay's, Jay Salville, how to play defense. Not necessarily the other stuff they have with that tenure, but the defense is drastically improved under Kill and then under Clay's. And I think partially that also instills a culture in these are how you do things. I think the seniors on this team, the class on this team, most notably John Celestine, who we've talked about before, also Steve Richardson, are people who can be in rooms, film rooms, locker rooms, etc., and can explain to new people what they need to be doing. And I think that leadership is present on this defense, which is why I'm far higher on them than I ever expected to be at the beginning of the season. So that would be my reason, Chris, as to why I think that we shouldn't worry as much as perhaps we should have in the past. I think if I had to pick 
a collapse. It would maybe be less of a collapse and more of a just complete domination from the start. And that would be something like the Iowa game that Brewster, you know, failed to acknowledge in the in the media guide or the kill year one Michigan beatdown. I don't think this defense would ever give up a loss that badly. I think the talent is better. I think the will I hate getting into intangibles, but I think it comes back to the coaching that they had previously and the coaching they're getting now. I I don't think the Brewster... The Mason defense is definitely lacked in that regard. The Brewster defense is definitely lacked in that regard. And obviously in Kills year one, they're not going to have had time to you know, set themselves up for success in that regard. I think the defenses that we've got now and hopefully have going forward are at a much better place in terms of their baseline ability to play both talent and schematic, you know, intelligence wise, where that sort of just a, a complete and utter beatdown isn't something we should have to worry about minus a few very specific unique scenarios with injuries in a bad place or the best college football team of all time on the other side of the field. Um, so that's that's where I go with it. Uh, Blake, did you have any kind of final thoughts before we get off this topic that as I think about why we're talking about it, I, I don't know why we're talking about it? I mean, as far as nightmares goes, uh, nothing beats the 2006 Insight Bowl for me. Um, I mean, that was back when it was on the NFL Network and we didn't have that at my house. So I had to follow through ESPN's crappy Gamecast, which was, you know, 10 years ago. So you can imagine how bad it was then compared to how crappy it is now. Um, and I just remember like just watch being so elated through the first half and then the second half. And later, all they had to do was get one stop in the second half, one stop on defense, and they couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, and then I mean, obviously the Brewster season that first year when they were just historically bad, that's just, I never want to go back to that. And I don't, I don't fear that we will because um, obviously under Clays and Savell, things turned around. Um, the defense is just really sharp, um, really well coached, um, didn't get beat a lot. Um, and I think this defense in particular, Rob Smith, has just really impressed me. I was you know, very skeptical when he came from Arkansas because he had a horrible last couple of years. And people were saying, oh, it's mutual beneficial that he and Bielema are kind of parting ways. And you know, people always just say that after a bad year. And I wasn't really sure if I was buying into it. But, um, I mean, it's hard not to be impressed for those first three games. I mean, competition, obviously not the greatest, but he's just been very adept at forcing the opposing offense to play to their weaknesses and kind of eliminating their strengths, which is, you know, what you want to do in a game to win. Um, so that's been extremely impressive. And I mean, to hold any opponent, like let alone three scoreless in the second half, that takes some skill and especially um, some good, you know, defensive acumen at the, in, at halftime to make those adjustments. So um, yeah, I love a good defense. Never want to go back to the Brewster years, and I think Rob Smith. Hopefully, yeah, moving forward, once we get you know even the the Killing Clay's recruits out and bring in um, the kind of athletes Rob Smith wants, that they can kind of sustain us and maybe even get even better. So, all right, we're gonna we're gonna try something new here. Um, I've decided to call it uh, U Street's Nuclear Hot Takes, presented by Fallout Four. Uh, Street's going to take us through why he... Well, I'm not even going to try to pre, like give a little pre uh, preamble here. Street, tell us all your nuclear fire hot takes about the FBI's investigation into NCAA basketball. 
This is the dumbest thing in the world. Straight up. Here, when we think about college basketball, we think of all of the problems with college basketball. So many of them exist. This particular investigation seems to be, in terms of the stuff that people are talking about, which is the Louisville bit, the problem is that a very good player who had market value was paid some money to go play basketball somewhere. It is, it is very difficult for me to understand what is actually wrong about that. And yeah, like I get it, it's probably bad and, you know, shouldn't do it and it's cheating and it's like not being done the right way. But please, it is a sport that is fundamentally built on a contradiction. And that contradiction is that of the student athlete. There is no such thing as a student athlete. If you are a top recruit, you have people, you have grown men who are texting you at all times of the day when you're like 13. And that's just fine. Like that's not a problem. It's not a problem that people are trucking all over the place. It's not a problem that you have shoe deals and all these brand new things. All of that's fine. It's not a problem that when you get onto campus, apparently, if you have difficulty eating or getting food, uh, that you can't have access to resources to do that. That that was a problem. It wasn't a problem for a really long time. Uh, it was a problem for a really long time. My, my mistake. It was a problem for a really long time if you wanted to have a bagel with different kinds of cream cheese on a recruiting visit. That was a problem. I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure that this certainly can be proven. I guess you get more than $10,000. They're part of public institutions. They receive federal funding. So you get a bribery or a corruption charge. And we're discussing that. But to assume that one, that this is those specific schools is probably silly. But even as a broader point, like who cares? Everyone, particularly people who are moralizing about this in the media, it's like Pat Forty. Uh, writing a thing that we need to give Louisville's program the death penalty as if Kentucky isn't doing the same thing. For that matter, if as if every program isn't doing some variant of this. And ultimately, what seems to have happened here is you have people entering into economic relationships that they should probably be free to enter into. If Adidas, Nike, Under Armour, whatever, really want to sign a kid when they're 15 to a shoe deal, they should probably be able to do that. It seems like a dumb business move, but, you know, whatever. I think they should be able to do that. I, I'm i not saying that Rick Pitino shouldn't have been fired today. I'm not saying Tom Jarrett shouldn't have been fired today. They probably should. But I will say that we are at a point where the primary problem of this scandal, this corruption, all of it, seems to center on recognizing that basketball players have value. And by the way, football players have value. The notion that this is only true for basketball is hilarious to me. It's probably not to the same level, because football players don't have shoe deals in the same way, the economics are a little bit different, but to pretend that Alabama isn't paying players and that they're not steering players is ludicrous. Stephen Godfrey in SB Nation, they had an article, I think it was two years now, called Meet the Bagmen. Same stuff. And we all know it's there. And when I say we, I mean both college fans, but even more importantly, though I don't get paid for this job, like college sports media, we're all profiting off this. It is absurd to me. It is absurd that we care. I hope that it indicts every single coach. And I mean literally every single one. So we can either drop the charade or alternatively just nuke everything and start over. To say that it is isolated in any way is absurd. 
That is my hot take. And this is the part where you need to picture uh, U Street riding the atomic bomb all the way down uh, <laughs> to the explosion. This is that, that that should be the image at the end of that take. All right, that was the nuclear fire of U Street, brought to you by Fallout Four. We're now going to take a quick look at some other nuclear fire takes. Those from the mind of crazy uncle Jim Harbaugh. For those who have been under a rock for the last couple days, Jim Harbaugh apparently thinks Purdue University hates everybody who's coming to play them. He tried to walk it back a little bit today during his uh, media interviews and his press conference. But essentially on Saturday, Jim Harbaugh came out and said, hey, Purdue University doesn't care about player welfare. They put us in an unsanitary visitor's locker room and a whole bunch of other mess of nonsense about how horrible it was. Now, I do want to clarify a couple things before I get hot takes flying back at me. One, player safety, exceptionally important. If I legitimately thought Purdue or any other school was jeopardizing player safety, I would call it out because I think it's incredibly important that player safety be taken seriously at any level of sport. Two, Heat and humidity is a big deal and it is important. The visitor locker room at Purdue does not have air conditioning. That is going to cause a problem. Now, conceivably, that problem could be player safety related. But my general feeling on that is, is if the medical staff for Michigan or any other team is doing their job, it really shouldn't be an issue. Now, all that said... Jim, we could go a lot of ways with this. You know, I kind of talked about in the gnomes today about why I think it's kind of ridiculous that Jim Harbaugh is talking about player safety. Because the interesting thing about that is, is that the locker room facilities that Purdue gives to visitors are really no different than what I would expect 95% of the high schools in America to offer not only the visiting team on game day, but oftentimes the home team on game day. If the home team's actual locker room in the school isn't right next to the football field or if the football field itself does not have a locker room which is actually extremely common outside of wealthy districts in suburban areas in certain metros it's also true that that same sort of condition is what you expect to see at the juco ranks except for the ones that go all crazy like east mississippi state or at the division three ranks like Without without kidding at all, Lawrence University, where I went to school in Wisconsin, they basically crammed each team into bathrooms, like a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. Like it, that's not exactly how it was, but that's basically what it was. That's where you spent your halftime. Didn't matter if it was nine thousand degrees below zero or the Sahara. You had no climate controlled, no actual facilities for taping. Like it was temporary tables like tape it was it was a mess and both of these things were behind the concession stands like it was not a facility that in any way screamed high tech or comfort uh, much less player safety so if Harbaugh is complaining about player safety he's really going about it in an interesting way and I think the fact that he walked back his comments to be more about oh gamesmanship yeah if he wants to talk gamesmanship that's cool but don't talk gamesmanship and then throw an important issue like player safety into the mix now that i've kind of ranted a little bit we decided to have a little fun what would jim think of our high school's facilities that we gave to away teams 
um, given his comments. And I think he would absolutely, absolutely be irate about my high school in northern Minnesota's facilities. The men's, uh, the home team, I mean, if it was cold, it was an equipment shed. That's what the home team went to. And the visiting team didn't have an actual facility. They went behind the visitor stands. Like they would huddle behind the place where the fans were on the visiting sideline. And that's where they would be. If it was really cold, they kind of went on to their own buses and they'd run the heaters. But there was no anything to protect them. If it was raining, they were just getting soaked unless they brought temporary tents or something for themselves. And this was the norm for anywhere we went. Um, I would assume Jim Harbaugh would have declared that to be something uh, resembling uh, a Civil War campaign. I, I think he probably would have sat there and, and gone off on a five-minute rant about how Custer's, or not Custer, uh, Pickett's men uh, were treated better after they lost, or General Grant would have never stood for it, or Sherman would have marched to the sea twice if this had happened. Uh, he would have, you know, he would have gone full fire on what my my football team was providing to people, and you know we were doing a decent job of it, all things considered. Street, what would uh, what would Jim, Uncle Jim, think of your high school's facilities? Well, there definitely wasn't an X-ray machine within several blocks. I would imagine there probably wasn't an X-ray machine within very short driving distance. So you probably would have had some issues with that. My high school was generally pretty good at the theater and the arts bit and not tremendously good at any of the sports things. So, and by sports things, I mean anything related to sports. The home locker room was, I think, also just the gym locker room. So it stank. And the visitor locker room... I think was probably similar. It probably wasn't a shed, but it was definitely an extremely small space somewhere that I'm sure you, if you had tape, it would have been a luxury. What about you, Blake? Uh, I was pretty fortunate. Uh, I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and that's a, a college town, same as uh, University of Northern Iowa. And we actually played our games in football at the Unidome. So we had like the college teams' locker rooms, which is automatically obviously better than most high schools. So um, I actually think Jim would have liked it. You know, we had we had air conditioning. Um, conditions were pretty nice. It didn't smell very bad at all. Um, so yeah, we were pretty spoiled. I think uh, I think Uncle Jim would have liked it. What made me laugh about this whole thing is I thought back to when uh, my my high school team was in the state finals and we were at the Metrodome, and we actually got the Vikings locker room as our locker room uh, for our state championship game. And I remember looking around the Vikings locker room thinking, this is a dump. <laughs> like, this is where an NFL team is? Like, this, is, this isn't this nice at all. Like, I mean, it was certainly way better than anything that we'd experienced. But it was really not that good, like, in general. So that's where I laugh is I think to myself, like, I bet you he still would have, like, complained if it had been <laughs> if it had been a metronome call. Like, he would have come to play Minnesota and been like, I can't believe that this is this is where that we're playing. And da, da, da. Like, he would have had a huge – he could have still made a stink about it, and it would have been an NFL locker room that he was, that he was complaining about. How dare, you, how dare you speak ill of the metronome? May it rest in peace. Terrible. No. 
it, it's a horrible place that deserved to be buried three times and set on fire and then had the ground salted. And the fact that the new stadium is in the same place makes me angry because I feel like there should have been some sort of like vast pagan death ground that nobody ever built upon again because it was so horrible. Honestly, yeah, I hate the Metrodome. I hate the Metrodome more than I hate this FBI investigation. Which, which would be worse, building your stadium over an Indian burial ground or burying it over the Metrodome? Metrodome. Too many bad, too many bad memories. We can't play a neutral site game in U.S. Bank Stadium because I feel like the ghosts of the previous bad games would come and grab us by the ankles. And then somewhere, the ghosts of <coughs> the men's bathroom troughs would just overflow. <laughs> All right, keeping with the Harbaugh experience for just a, a couple minutes longer. What's your worst road trip experience? Like, what was the worst facility you ever played in when you took a road trip for sports ball? Blake? I'll be honest. I've been racking my brain for this for, like, the, the duration of the podcast. I honestly can't think of one. Yeah, I just – we were spoiled, I guess. I mean, Iowa, man, they're good for something if it's high school football. I feel like you should have just lied, man. I know. I'm sorry. I just I was trying to think of a good like the worst possible thing that we that we experienced and try to like hype it up a little bit. I just I can't think of anything. I'm sorry. Fair enough. I'll change. Street. I'll change my I'll change my best for the next podcast. <laughs> change your best. So the so I actually have two things for this. One is sports ball and one is non sports ball. The worst sports ball I was ever in was a gym that had recently flooded. It was probably 7th or 8th grade basketball. And so it hadn't been fully cleaned yet because flooding is somewhat difficult to clean up. And that meant that when you went into one of the corners, you were just sort of in about a quarter inch of water. And we just played because like middle school, whatever. So that's one. Uh, Non-sports ball. I did a, a high school activity. So it was in high school. We went to Marshall, Minnesota. And all of the hotels in Marshall, Minnesota, which is not a tremendously large city, had been booked by other teams that had come in. So we were forced to stay at a travel lodge that uh, was across the street from a pay-by-the-hour hotel, which I I had friends who were on a different team who had to stay in the -the pay-by-the-hour hotel. And I have it on good authority that their hotel was cleaner than our hotel. The rooms, you know, like the American Psycho and, well, not American Psycho, just Psycho. It's like the old Bates Motel, like the Hitchcock version, not this new Bates Motel thing. That hotel, nicer than the travel lodge we stayed at, Marshall, Minnesota. The shower, you, Chris, being a tall man, uh, the shower, I think, was, the head of the shower was, I think, maybe four and a half feet off the ground. Uh, I was crouching over. To, to be in a shower. It didn't really have any hot water. All of the interior, like, fake wood paneling was simultaneously molding and rusting, which you wouldn't think could happen for something that was made out of wood, and that raised other questions as to what the structure of the building was actually made with. I am 100% positive the sheets were never clean in the history of this travelogue. And uh, also, the heater broke. And so for at least some period of time before we just moved rooms, we were in Minnesota in the winter 
in a hotel room that I am positive has had at least four or five different horror movies filmed in it without working heat. That is the worst trip I've ever taken. Can you top that? I, I'm struggling to come up with a sports ball related trip that has worse lodging accommodations than that. When I started to think about what my answer would be to this question, I, I could come up with like a half dozen, man, this was really like 1930s era locker room facilities that I was in. And, but none of them stood out as being so like utterly horrible that they were worth talking about. So I, I'm just going to say that the worst experience was one of the 1930s locker rooms combined with the worst basketball referee I've ever met in my entire life. Um, we would have been in Crosby, Ironton. And so, you know, Iron Range, small school. I can't blame them. Facilities aren't the best. I remember the locker room being cramped and tiny and smelly and whatever else. Nothing that you wouldn't experience in high school all the time. But we got matched up with a referee who I swear to God had a belt buckle, a silver belt buckle, the size of like half of a license plate, giant silver belt buckle with his referee. This isn't what he came in wearing before he changed into his stripes. This is what he was wearing with his stripes. He was not wearing spurs, but he might as well have been. And the dude, if you think Teddy TV Valentine likes to make himself the show, oh my God. This guy, he wanted to be in the show. Everything needed an extra gesture, and everything that could be uh, in, that he interpreted as talking back, which usually consisted of you talking to your teammates after getting a foul called, got a snide comment, and then eventually by the third quarter, technicals started being handed out, and it was bad. And our coach got tossed, and he. Our coach put on a show because he was so angry at this point that if he was going to go, he was going to go full Bobby Knight, uh, Nick Nolte blue chips on it. Like he didn't throw anything, but verbally he went that far. And all I can remember was having to listen to the post game, you know, speech from him in a tiny little locker room, thinking about the worst referee I've ever met in my entire life with a giant belt buckle. So if you happen to be listening to our podcast, referee with the giant belt buckle. You are a horrible person, and I certainly hope you are not refing anymore. All right, question time that we don't have a name for, that I'm still struggling to come up with one. We'll get there eventually. We will change our best. What's the turnover margin on Saturday? My guess, we're going to be plus two because I feel like pretty good about this game. Street? Plus two, same reason. Blake? Plus, plus four. I'm going to double down. Okay, so you're saying plus four. Is that plus four with four Minnesota takeaways and no Minnesota giveaways? Or is Minnesota like going to like take the ball away on six possessions and give it away twice? I'm going to say three interceptions, two fumble recoveries, and then Rhoda throws one interception. So there we go. All right. Uh, is Old Bay overrated? For those of you who don't know, Old Bay is a spice that Maryland people are like – I swear to God they would have sex with Old Bay if that was something you could do. Blake, is Old Bay overrated? You know, I've never understood the obsession with putting seasoning on seafood, so I'll just say yeah. Overrated. Street? Not only is Old Bay overrated, crabs as a food is overrated. Whoa. Any food that takes like five times the amount of time to make and get ready as it does to eat 
and gives you so little sustenance. As Ron Sonson would say, and I'll paraphrase slightly, like it's basically a vegetable. That to me is ridiculous. <laughs> hard dis hard disagree. Hard disagree. It's all about the work, man. Nothing nothing worth it is ever easy, you know. That's all I'll say. That's ludicrous. Plenty of things like eating food. It should be easy. <laughs> it should not require me to have have basically anything you put on my plate should not require me to ask for instructions how to eat it. I reject all of that. So you're saying you, you shouldn't have to bring like the hammer you use to swing at the the thing at the at Valley Fair when you're trying to knock the 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 thing up to the bell. You shouldn't need a hammer like that to eat your food. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that if I need to bring something that Gallagher would have used in a routine, I'm at a bad restaurant. <laughs> All right. I, I just don't like seafood in general, so uh, the closest you'll get me to eating crab is like a really fresh, well-prepared crab cake. And even then, I'm still going to give you side eye when you serve it to me. So I'm definitely not fighting you too hard on that one. Um, all right. So we're kind of we're hitting the end of the podcast here. Prediction. Uh, I'm going to say Minnesota 31-17. Blake? I'm going to go the same score as last year. 31-10 for a couple reasons. Last year, Conorado was a quarterback. This year, Conorado will be a quarterback. Last year, Maryland had the backup quarterback. This year, they've got the backup quarterback. And Gophers and Antron Winfield to make things miserable for that quarterback like he did last year. So, 31-10. Street? Good guys, 28-17. All right. Thanks again for joining us for the Sky U podcast. We look forward to any comments you have about how we can keep changing our best. And Sky U Ma, row the boat. Go Gophers. Oh.